Welcome to the Rise Network podcast show, a podcast dedicated to help you reach your dream lifestyle through investing in real estate. We're going to be sitting down with new, intermediate, and experienced investors to talk all about real estate and how it has changed their lives. If you're looking to scale your portfolio or even just get into real estate investing, you're in the right place. Make sure to tune in. Hello, everyone. You are listening to the Rise Real Estate Investing Podcast with your host, Austin Ye and... And Mayu, what's going on, everyone? I know you guys missed us. It's been about two weeks or so. Austin's rocking a, a pink headband today. Should be a good episode. It's but a Austin, Lululemon headband, actually, because my hair has grown out too long. Sure, good thing whatever. we don't have video of it, eh? <laughs> Until we post this on Reels, man. I'm going to tell I guess both. so. Make sure yeah, yeah, I'll go viral. <laughs> All right, man. What's been going on over the last two, two and a half weeks? Something like that since we recorded. Yeah, episode. yeah. It's been a while. So I uh, have a few closings coming up. That's what I've been keeping busy on. One of the closings is with my uh, business partner, Waylon. We got a deal in Windsor. It's a five unit. Did cash for keys. All of them signed the N11. One of them actually left earlier prior to closing. Another one, elderly lady. She's very sweet working full time right now. I think she does bookkeeping or accounting. She's lived there for 10 years in a two bedroom and paying about 500 bucks, Damn. which is extraordinarily low. Anyway, she signed the N11 in cash for keys. I'm just helping her find another place because she doesn't have a cell phone. She has a home phone, a landline, <laughs> which oh, wow. you know, <laughs> and uh, she has an email, but no social media. So she's been going on Kijiji on her PC, not a laptop, but like her PC. She's been going on Kijiji. But I told her all of the listings are on Facebook now. Most of the listings are on Facebook now. That's where you get the most. Right. And you can filter by location on Facebook. You can filter by a price range and all of that stuff. So I've been helping her with that and actually ended up finding her a place that is off market. Someone listed something. I reached out to them. They said that it was tenanted. And I told them the situation. I was like, I have a sweet old lady. She's making above minimum wage. This is her budget. Great tenant. So on and so forth. Do you have any other places? She's like, yeah, I'm about to paint a place. And surprisingly enough, it's also in East Windsor in a better area than where she's living right now. And it's only 1100 bucks. That's a two bedroom too. So what it is hell? double. Why is it so low? Old school, old school landlord, you know, like someone mm. who's owned it for 30, 40 years. Yeah, yeah. And it's just, I guess they're not, they don't need to maximize their profits. Yeah. yeah. So just ran across the right person and got her in there yesterday. And it looks like she'll be having a lease signed for January 1st. So then there's one and the last one's ODSP. And that one is going to be, we'll see, like, I'm going to try to help them obviously. But I've asked them what their situation is. And they said that worst case, they'll move back with their family. So okay. there's that, right? It's not bad. But that, that's, that's me over the past like two weeks is like figuring out all of these cash for key situations and like following up. Because one thing to get, we know this, Mayu, we got an 9-11 sign for that crack house and all the crack <laughs> still stayed there. <laughs> I mean, once you get that N11 sign, what is it? The L, L3 that you L3, got? L3, it's an L3 right after. It's about like what, two months more that you'd have to wait? No, no, still going to take eight months. They're not going to have a hearing, but it will still take six, eight months. So it'll still be a pain in the ass. That being said, it usually doesn't even lead to a hearing. It leads to an automatic sort of eviction, right? Like you have seven days to leave or a sheriff will come. No, but that's good, man. You're going above and beyond the normal cash key service. (laughs) Yeah. And part of it's like, if I don't do that, then they're just going to end up staying. Right. That old lady, like how she, she might just, if she can't find a place, she's just going to stay. So it's on me as well to like, it's in my best interest to do whatever I can to help them. How'd she give her in cash for keys? She was a lot. She was the most I've ever given anyone. That was 8,500 bucks. Yeah. 
At least but again, the market rent there is sixteen hundred, so yeah, it yeah, made yeah. Sense. yeah, yeah, yeah. And part of it is she would have accepted less, but I felt bad. <laughs> <laughs> I felt bad. Like my soft spot in cash for keys is elderly people because yeah, yeah. they're the more vulnerable population. They can't really bounce back as much, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. How old is she? She, she looks like she's in her fifties and she's living oh, alone. Okay. She has family. Yeah, yeah, it's not that bad. You mean it seems like she's no, it's not bad. It's not bad. But she's she's a single income. She's lived there for ten years. She's like the dream tenant. Although aside from her paying low, she's been an amazing tenant. Like even right now, literally, she's just like, oh my gosh, the gas stopped. That she called the gas company and found out someone turned it off, got it turned back on, and then she went downstairs and says someone stole copper piping, and she called me, and then she's just like. I can get it replaced. And then she's like getting quotes and stuff for me and all of that. So she's, she's like, gonna pay for it? she offered to pay for it. And I was like, don't do that. <laughs> right? I was like, no, don't do that. She's like the star tenant. She's a very sweet lady. So it's like part yeah. of it's like, okay, like obviously like with tenants like that, you want them to bounce back. Yeah. You should have put her in our duplex in the upper unit. Yeah. She's not going to be able to afford any of that. <laughs> no, <laughs> really? duplex upper unit. We get like 1100 or something like that. Uh, do we? Yeah, we could yeah. probably get more. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> you know, like we're different. We're capitalists. We're, yeah, we're, we're supplementing renters out here, bro. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Straight up. How's everything going on with you? Oh, actually, before we, I even ask you that, just for the audience to know, this episode is just a Mayu and I episode. We're going to shoot the shit, and then we're going to go over some of the cautionary tales in real estate investing, because there's a lot of problems bubbling up in the back end that you guys might not have insight to. But we being connected in the network, we hear stories, we hear rumblings. Mayu and I have actually experienced some of these issues in our own portfolio. But yeah, that's just a quick update so people know what to look forward to in the episode. And to be fair, if you attended the Rise event that we had, when was it, like a week and a half or two weeks ago? It's the same presentation, but we'll go a little bit more in depth on that, on some of our own stories and stuff like that. The last two weeks for me, man, honestly, wasn't bad. There's been a lot of like real estate events. I'm getting pretty tired of going to real estate events, to be honest with you. <laughs> but it seems like there's quite a few of them. Everyone just came out of the woodworks and, and just had a bunch of events that I've been attending. The mortgage side has been doing pretty well decent recently. We've had to do a lot of like outside of the box thinking, I think, right? Meaning like, okay, like appraisers are coming in low because there's no real comps that have sold in areas. Like how much further out can we go? What kind of arguments can we make to support valuations? Like, okay. We did this in Welland recently, right? Where Welland, there's not that many like turnkey duplexes that have sold recently or triplexes, right? So we point to St. Catharines and then we do a market analysis to say, okay, average home price in Welland, I don't know what it was now, but let's just say it's like 600K and St. Catharines is like 650. Perfect. Let's discount the St. Catharines cost by like 5%, right? So you got to do a little bit more outside the box thinking. We have one appraisal that we're doing in Toronto, came back with a fucking, what was it? A 20 year useful life on the property. And it's just like, it's not that bad. But all of these appraisers have various metrics that they got to use to like determine what is a useful life. So like I'm going out there probably on Tuesday to meet with the appraiser, get an idea from him exactly what do we need to fix to the house to get it done at like a, a proper 60 year useful life. Right. And then we're is this just Scarborough property? This is a downtown Toronto, like proper property for you or for a no, client? No, no, for, for a client. Right. So it's okay. just like a lot of like more outside the box thinking that we didn't have to do necessarily when the market was going up. Right. So we just have to get more creative. So. It's been fun on the mortgage side. We are moving our office as well. So we gave up. I was in like a shared office space in Pickering. Ever since I've hired Marco, like it was, I didn't really want to keep working from home just because like it's not a real like professional environment kind of thing. So I had the shared office space in Pickering and now we're moving to an actual like office space that we're leasing out with another mortgage agent together. That'll be in Scarborough. So that's kind of been in the works in the last couple of weeks. From the real estate side, 
my Minden property renovation. Oh my God. That's fucking, uh, that's a journey on its own, bro. So, so we got it down. Like, okay. So we did all of our renovations, plumbing's in, electrical's done, drywall's in. So there's a couple of issues. So we realized the, it's on a well, right? In cottage country, very common to be on a well system. Uh, the pressure system that ejects the water from the well into the house is probably broken because it's like very jet pump, issue, right? Yeah. That's like 6,000, 5,000, yeah, 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 right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. So that's one issue, right? But then we realized the oil tank is also on empty. So I called the company to come and fill up the oil tank. They're like, hey, we need like this inspection done. Last time you did an inspection or the previous owner did an inspection was 2010. I'm like, all right, this shit's probably not going to pass an inspection. So let's get real about what we need to do to put in, like replace the oil system. And so we're just going to switch it to a propane system. The problem is you can't switch it to propane until January because everyone's booked out up there. And then you can't fix the water system because you don't want to have plumbing in a house with water when there's no heat. So we're basically delayed for like a month and a half now, which kind of sucks. And really, I should have like seen ahead and like dealt. Like as soon as you close the house, so, you some of these it. things you can't, you will never know, right? How do you know that the oil system is not going to pass inspection? Right? Yeah, but at the same time, man, we've done so many projects that we know we should always look at plumbing, electrical, and heat. Right, like that. That's really what you should fix first. It's true, but is the oil tank? Uh, it's above ground. Yeah, yeah, it's above ground. Outside. Okay, gotcha. Yeah. Did you get a home inspection? The contractors never complained that there was no heat, and then randomly they're like, "Yeah, there's been no heat since we've been like working on this house since mid October." I'm like, "Well, fuckers, why didn't you tell me?" <laughs> like, <laughs> so by the time we realized, it was like late November, and it was just like, yeah, so. We've actually had that happen to one of our houses as well in rural Chelmsford, the 10 acre one. We just replaced it with electric baseboard instead because it is a rental property. Yeah. yeah. And we're just like to replace it to a propane system is going to be incredibly expensive. Yeah. We ended up just doing electric baseboard. Thought about it. This house is about like 3000 square feet. Six builds are going to be insane. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, yeah. The, the bill would have been like crazy if I switched it to electrical. So I was like, oh, fuck that. This is, and plus we're going to Airbnb it, right? So it's not long-term rental. So it's a little bit different. So that one's good. The Sudbury one, we pivoted a couple of times back and forth on what our strategy was going to be there. I didn't personally want to build out the addition. There's a third unit in the back, legal unit, but like, it's like a full, like full, full renovation. Just we, We're going to spend probably like 80 grand on just that. Um, I didn't want to do that right now because we bought it for two, I think it was like 235 or something like that. Um, yeah. so, so I was like, you know what, let's just like do the front two units. Let's refinance the duplex. We'll probably hit like at least like 450 and we'll hold on to extra cash. But then we were like, okay, like it's going to cash flow like $50 a month as a duplex mm-hmm. at 440, which is kind of fucked because it's, um, they're both two bedrooms, but the upper is a smaller two bedroom. So then we were like, okay, like if we built out that back unit, sure. We're refinancing at a higher value as well. Probably 550 is what we're thinking, but at least it'll cash flow like four or $500 a month. So you got a little bit of slack. So we're doing that now. It's going to be 80 grand there and another 60 grand in the front and the exterior and so on and so on. So a lot of money going out because, um, I mean the Minden one, technically I'm not capital partner, but I've been front loading a lot of the expenses and then just getting a reimbursement partner. And then Sudbury we're, we're split down the middle on that one. So yeah, man, keeping busy. It's good. I'm enjoying it, mm-hmm. but we'll see. Yeah. Yeah. No, it sounds like you have a lot going on. Just out of curiosity, before we get into what is the cost of switching something to a propane system? It has to be expensive, right? No, it's coming out to be about seven grand. Okay. Not cheap though. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Cause you got to replace the furnace, which is about like, I think it was like three, four grand for that. And then you got to run some new lines and then you got to remove the oil tank. You got to remove the oil tank. Yeah, exactly. That's like a few thousand on its own, right? If it's like I in the basement or like something. $800 for like disposal of the oil tank and then like cutting the lines in like another 700. Yeah, so you're probably at a couple thousand. 
Yeah. yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. It just goes to show, you know what, no matter how experienced you are, there are things that come up. I'm sure other investors have are going through similar sort of situations, but if you buy it right, then there's a little bit less to stress about, right? This yeah, just yeah. becomes a capital thing, like capital inflow in and out. <laughs> yeah. And that's the issue for all investors. I'm starting to feel broke and I'm like, yo, like what the fuck's happening to all my money? Like, where is it going? And I realize I'm like hemorrhaging money on these two renovations. I've done some projects. Are you, are you not funding via promissory notes? No. Like for my own projects? Uh, yeah yeah you're doing no, no, it all no, no okay so you're just doing ca- hey at least like with that it's you feel broke but you know it's like all right like this is not that right? it's coming back at some point right like it's yeah just it's not like, that management yeah yeah exactly yeah. exactly so anyway speaking of debt let's get into kind of our topic for today which is the cautionary tales of real estate investing obviously i guess i'll get started off over the past Eight months, things have definitely changed in the Canadian real estate landscape. It's crazy to think that eight to nine months ago, our cities were appreciating double digits pretty much, right? Month over month growth was absolutely insane. (laughs) Prices were going hundreds of thousands above asking multiple offer, clean offers, ship properties were moving, and everyone was making money hands over fist. It was insane. Like our net Mm -hmm. worth was going up probably six figures every single month to every other month. (laughs) But fast forward to today, eight to nine months later, a lot has changed, right? We're seeing fear mongering headlines all over the media outlets. Mm -hmm. Prices have dropped 20 to 30% from the highs of February to March. Some places even more than that. Bank of Canada's overnight rate went from 0.25% to 3.75% in the span of eight months. And we're probably looking at another 25 or 50 in December as well. Inflation's run amok, geopolitical tensions, this is war. So much has changed and this has impacted us in real estate investors in a significant way. With all of this uncertainty, buyers have dried up, prices have fell off, flippers, burr investors, or just real estate investors in general are kind of stuck in a rock and a hard place if they purchase properties anytime recently. And we're going to get into some stories of, without naming any names, and this is not even just one investor, but several investors we know that go through kind of these heartaches in each one of these categories, first and foremost, is investors who scale too quickly. And they're feeling a ton of pain at the moment. Um, A lot of people in our network, well, just real estate community as a whole, we promote buying multiple projects every single month, right? Like, especially when the market was hot, those are the people we praised. And if you fell behind, you would kind of do the same thing as well. The issue is when you peel back the layers of this onion, you see that a lot of these people are able to scale via leverage high leverage at that, promissory notes, private money, such that they're buying multiple projects and it becomes a domino effect. If one of them goes wrong, then they're not going to be able to pay back the lenders on their other projects. So you're seeing people who are equity rich, but cash poor. And obviously in this current marketplace, that's a terrible place to be in. You don't want to be cash poor in case there's anything that comes up and it's hard to get any more promissory note or debt in this environment as well. Investors are unable to exit their projects at the projected prices. So they're going in at a loss. Uh, we're going to talk about that a little bit earlier, sharing one of your stories, Mayu, and even one of my stories as well. And some investors are raising more private money to bring their projects to the finish line, knowing that there'll already be a large loss or raising private money to pay off other private money. Mm-hmm. And I've actually heard about this recently. I had to sit down with another investor. He's like, yeah, I lent my money to someone. I'm like, oh, cool. What'd they do with it? He's like, I just recently found out they're paying out another private lender with that private money. I was like, yikes. This was an experienced investor who was doing that too. Okay, No names again, but uh, it's happening. So be careful who you lend to. 
and if you can't liquidate your properties, you can't exit at a loss, you're forced holding them. And how are you going to pay back your lenders because you can't refinance that either? The lesson learned from all of this is scale responsibly. Take out leverage you can afford to pay back. Ensure you have multiple exit strategies and be okay with leaving money in the deal if you absolutely need to. If you're going to leave 50, 60, 70, 80K, 100K in a deal and that's going to break you, then it might not be worthwhile doing the deal. In real estate, slow and steady wins the race. It's only the last five years, which fortunately at the same time, Mayu and I participated in the last (laughs) five years where people were just buying multiple properties every single month. But that is not the norm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that was definitely the main thing. I think it's just like investors scaling up too quickly and not really like monitoring the risk and the different leverage points. Right. So that leads us into the second point is just leverage as a whole. Right. So I think over the last couple of years, there's been everyone in real estate just talking about leveraging up. Right. And it honestly was great. Right. To a limit. Be cautious of anyone that kind of blindly promotes leverage because for the last couple of years, we had debt what was it, like 1.5%, 2%, 2.5, depending on like how you're sourcing your stuff, super cheap rates, right? While inflation was at like seven, eight, 9%, whatever. Although the BLC didn't really mention that. The problem now comes is that leverage has gone up even on like a lender bank financing. Leverage is now like six, 7%, depending on how you're funding your stuff, right? That's not really cheap debt anymore, right? So focus on your ability of yourself to essentially service your assets, right? Watch your cash flow see where it's at on a monthly or quarterly basis. Just keep monitoring your cash flow. Myself and Austin did this and we realized we had cash flow negative properties that were bleeding like a thousand dollars a month. We were like, holy shit, we got to fix this, right? It also led us to decide to sell off some of our single family houses where the mortgages were in static mortgage payments. The result of which is you don't really have mortgage pay down. The cash flow is maybe like a hundred dollars a month or something like that. We're probably not going to really have appreciation for the next one or two years in the single family house asset class. So we were like, you know what, what's the point of holding this? Sure. We don't get a crazy amount of money each if we sold it, but there's also no point in holding it. So we might as well redeploy some of that capital into other properties. Right. So constantly make sure you guys are monitoring your cash. I think that's going to be key moving forward. The other side of it is almost every individual, like I have clients that have like hundred, 200 K incomes and their borrowing capacity is getting cut, right? So if you're at 50, 60, 70 K and you've been used to being able to qualify for multiple houses, make sure you guys are watching what your borrowing capacity actually is, right? We used to stress this people at, I think it was like 4.75 or some 5%. Now we're stress testing at like 8%. Makes a huge impact on people's borrowing capacity. Adjustable rate mortgages and static rate mortgages, right? Basically they're all variable, right? But some people have had adjustable rate mortgages with Scotia. So our payments have gone up in line with the interest rate hikes, they will come down when eventually rates come down as well. But if you've had a static mortgage, you've kind of been in this little bubble where you've been protected for the last little bit. But now I think everyone that has a static rate mortgage has gotten the call from the bank, just telling them, Hey, you got to either switch into a fix. You got to increase your variable payments, or you got to make a lump sum payment, which usually is not an option for most people. Fixed mortgage payments gives you a sense of security. I've got a couple of fixes as well. Those are great right now, but I know within the next two years, those are coming up for renewal. And I'll probably be facing decent sticker shock on those, right? So watch your leverage, guys, when you're renovating or you know what your carrying costs are. If you're funding using private money, that's definitely a high leverage approach strategy, right? The best strategy for me is also not going to be the best strategy for you, right? And it's probably your the best strategy for you is probably going to be a very different strategy from what works from the person beside you or in your immediate network, right? So think about your individual situation. Look at your leverage responsibly, right? Always have up-to-date financial snapshots of yourself. Make sure you can adequately service your debt and have a worst, worst case scenario, right? 
leverage is great when you manage it responsibly, but it can also be what cripples us in the real estate world. Right. So guys, just keep that in mind. Exactly. And you think about, again, like Mayu, from kind of our knowledge, the investors who have made the most money is because of leverage, right? But also Mm -hmm. at the same time, the investors who feel the most pain is also because of leverage too. And I want to share a little bit of a story here about leverage, how it's helped me. But at the same time, when I reflect back on it, it could have also went poorly, but Mm -hmm. it just didn't because timing had an element of it, right? So in the time of 2021, where real estate was hot, I bought a six unit property, fully tenanted, all under market rents. And the game plan is to turn around as many units as possible and then refinance it like any other apartment building investor. Now, given the crappy financials of the property I purchased, was able to only get 50% loan to value on the property and had to leverage the other 50% on a second. And then for construction, I figured, why use my own money? Just just use other people. How much did you buy for? I bought it for 505. Okay, so you had about 250K private, 250K institutional funds. That's right. And then I also got uh, a, a loan, a promissory note for the um, construction element. So that was another 130,000, 140,000. From there, that's how I was operating the deal, right? So over 100% loan to value, theoretically, not even th- like practically, 100, 100, over, over 100% loan to value. And the scary part was, is that it's all reliant on, on tenant turnover, right? And being able to refinance. Mm-hmm. Now, fortunately, was able to get them all out and was able to refinance. I refinanced, I believe it was March. So rates were just, I think it was the first rate hike, but fortunately it was still overall in the lower interest rate environment. So I was able to qualify and it became a full burr. Now, that being said, had I take the same property and I wasn't able to push it to the finish line until now, I don't know what LTV would have been because my debt Mm. service would have changed significantly. Maybe it wouldn't have been a full burr. Nonetheless, even though it worked out for me financially, while I was going through the process, it was definitely scary because if I had to cough up, I don't know, like six hundred, seven hundred thousand dollars in cash, that means selling and convincing my partners as well to sell a significant part yeah. of my portfolio to cover that debt. Right. So was it responsible? No. Did the deal make sense? Yes. But at the same time, it wasn't within my risk comfort. As I was going through the entire process, there was a knot in my stomach that things could go wrong. <laughs> Even when I got all the tenants up, there were still, it was always just uncomfortable being in that much debt. So I personally wouldn't do it again, but I know other investors who make a lot of money doing that. Yeah. And this is one thing I'm going to add, which maybe goes against like a lot of, let's just say like other investors kind of mentality, right? So I think in Ontario, one of our biggest risks is tenant risk. And when people are burying apartment buildings that don't already come with vacant units, they underplay how significant of a risk that is. They're just like, yeah, I'm going to go in there and negotiate vacancies. Like, cool, man. What if you don't? Right. Like, and there is no backup option, right? Especially if they're buying with private money and they're going fully levered approach. Right. I think in your case, you obviously have experience in the cash for key side, but you've also acknowledged that there was a risk there. Right. My concern is when people buy apartment buildings thinking they're going to burn it, they weren't able to negotiate vacancies. Historically, they've still been fine because they bought in an environment where cap rates were getting compressed every single month, right? Similar to like, as interest rates goes down, cap rates generally do get compressed. Right now, they're benefiting from the fact that rents are going up, right? But there's like, both of which were not sustainable forever, right? Like rents can't just go up drastically month over month at the rate that they've been going yeah. up and cap rates couldn't keep just going down or you'd be at like a zero cap rate at some point, right? So those are just kind of two things that quickly point out there. 
Yeah, awesome. And I guess we'll jump on to the third category of investors who are hurting, which are pre-construction buyers. It's a popular strategy, especially in major metropolitan cities where getting into the market is fairly difficult because you're bidding against 20 or 30 different people. And investors, what they like to do with pre-construction condos or buildings is or properties. They want to purchase these properties, wait for three to four years, and then try to assign it for a profit. Now, that's the majority of pre-construction investors. Not many of them have the mentality of going in willing to close the property or have the financials to be able to close on the property. And that's where you can get yourself in trouble. There are a lot of buyers who have three or four pre-construction properties closing in the next year. And so obviously, they will need to offload them or find a way to get the financing to close them, which they're unable to. So as a result, what we're seeing is many distressed assignment sellers. If you just go on Facebook Marketplace or if you go on Facebook groups that have assignment deals, you can see that there's quite a bit of deals that are selling pretty much at cost for 2019 and 2018 or maybe slightly above. But a lot of investors are willing to take a loss because if they close on it, if they're able to close on it, realistically speaking, they're not okay with having two, $3,000 negative cash flow, or mm-hmm. they just aren't physically able to close on it. Um, and this could be very scary for the real estate market. As Urban Nation predicts, not predicts, but the stats say that 31,000 condors are coming to completion next year, which is an all-time high in Canada ever. Even if 10% of those people have trouble closing, that's going to have a significant broader impact on the real estate market. Um, that being <laughs> said, pre-constructions work in appreciating markets, obviously. But when things don't appreciate, you have to realize that pre-constructions, like any other real estate investment, is a long-term buy and hold. So you need to be willing to close on it and hold the property for the long-term. And understand as well, most pre-constructions are cash flow negative on purchase. So you need to be okay and have the fund set aside to have a cash flow negative property until the market picks up again and appreciates. So the lesson learned here, exactly what I said, long-term buying a hold and realize that the only lever you're relying on is long-term market depreciation, which you have very little control over. And if this is your investment strategy, really understand the downside risk before you get into it. So I will say like myself and Austin, we both bought pre-con. My very first property that I bought was pre-con. Austin, you bought an assignment pre-con, which is where you guys live right now. I know you have another one out in Forest Hill. The primary residence that I live in right now is a pre-con. So I'm going to say two things on this. One is pre-con is, in my opinion, really only makes sense if you're going to be an end user, right? Because it's kind of like driving a new car off the lot, right? Like you really want to drive a new car off the lot and then immediately give it to someone else to benefit from the highest utility moment of that house, right? So when we bought our primary residence, I was like, you know what? We can go for a pre-con because that brand new house feeling is going to be hard to replicate, even if you fully renovated another house, like the exterior would be rolled, stuff like that, right? So we did go for a pre-con on our primary residence and a close family member recently purchased another pre-con because, for example, if you think your income will drastically increase in the next three or four years, right? Uh, that timeline of having three or four years to make the deposit structure for a down payment is hard to beat. You can very rarely get that honestly structure, like a very nice like VTB on an existing house, right? But for the most part, it's very hard to beat. And so pre-con can work for some people. It's just important to understand like what is the risk surrounding the pre-con strategy? And is it a time to like go balls blazing as like a pure investment on a pre-con, right? So I'm not going to answer that, but it's up to everyone else to kind of conclude on that. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. And just just to touch on one more quick thing on that. You're exactly right. It's dependent on each individual sort of need. So it could make sense 
But there's a lot of risk that people don't like to talk about, which is kind of what we're seeing pan out right now. So just understand right. that this could happen and prepare for the worst, just like with any other investment. Yep, exactly. All right, let's talk about private money lending, right? So this presentation was done at our Rise event uh, where Cover was a sponsor to give them some clout because they're a great private lending partner. But within private lending, you've got a certain assets and loans that a lot of like mix and institutional capital just won't touch, right? So they're a lot more strict in the current market. You've got a lot of like institutional lenders saying that they, they'll only go to 75, 70% loan to value, even in GTA, which before 80, 85 is kind of like, sure, no problem, we'll get there, right? So loan to values on private money is becoming tighter. Renewals aren't guaranteed. I had lenders or sorry, clients contact me with like 10 different private loans on 10 different flips. And they're like, hey, like, can we get out of this into like some sort of cheaper cost of capital, right? Also kind of, you got to factor in that a lot of in the private lending space, even a MIC will use equity partners, but they'll also use bank funds, right? And so their bank funds will be tied to prime usually. So a lot of these guys and individual lenders, we usually use HELOCs to lend our capital out based on, right? So our cost of capital has now gone up drastically as well from what used to be 2.5% on a HELOC to now you're talking about like 6.57%, something in that ballpark, right? So a lot of times institutional and individual lenders, we need a higher rate of return. So if you guys are thinking about jumping into the private money space, which a lot of people are because they're scared to buy real estate right now, and they're looking for a return on their capital, as a lender, just make sure you guys are always asking for what is their exit and their repayment plan, right? Don't try to rescue an individual as oftentimes you're just really enabling that individual, right? So when you're looking at a deal, assess the asset first, like how much equity is there in this house? Is this in a market that is very liquid where houses will actually sell, right? What's the borrower's exit plan? What's their backup plan? And then what's their worst case plan that they don't even really want to acknowledge, right? As a lender, if you guys are new to the space, honestly, lending through a MIC might be a lot safer and a lot easier in the current environment. Obviously, it's a trade-off with the rate of return versus if you had loaned out your funds directly as well, right? I think we also had a question on this exact topic in the Rise Facebook page, and there was a, a pretty good thread there as well. Shout out to Adam Stapley, who gave like a really detailed answer. So that was great. As a borrower, like if you guys are taking out private loans right now, make sure you've got a plan. You, you got to know when you want to stop and just take a loss up front, right? So a lot of flippers, they're, they're juggling from one private to another private. And they just refuse to take that loss, right? So just take responsibility for the situation that you're in. Leverage private money responsibly, right? Put in your own equity when you're buying deals. Buy good deals that also have a strong, very conservative exit valuation. And don't take on too much risk, right? So I think the lesson here is if you're struggling to get private money, you also have to assess your own deal and your profile. Understand why you're struggling to get that private money. If you're lending money, do your own due diligence on the asset first. Everything else almost falls second. Yep. Yep, exactly. And just to add on to that, there are investors, people like tout private lending as an extraordinarily safe investment. Realistically, no safe investment is going to pay you double digit returns. Not safe, sorry, but it can't be 100% safe if it's paying you double Mm -hmm. digit returns. And we know personally people who have private lent their money who have not seen it back. And that's just the reality of it. So as Maya said, it's all about the due diligence process. So we can head over to the next section, which we're going to talk about real estate fix and flippers. Yes, these gentlemen and women have made tons of money over the past 10, 15 years. But if you're newer to the game and you're going through it right now, you're probably finding that your properties are not really selling on the market. Real estate flippers usually operate multiple properties at a time. And as a result, they're taking a lot of private money. I feel like this is a common topic as we keep on bringing up private money. And it's not that it's the bad thing. It's about using it responsibly, right? And having, Mm -hmm. again, exit strategies. However, a lot of flippers are generally optimistic 
on the real estate market. And their only exit a lot of the times is to sell the property. However, markets have come down 20 to 30% from peak. And I know for a fact that flippers are not making 30% profit margin. Myself, like I flipped the Mayu, you flipped as well. It's not 30 to 40% profit margin. So pretty much all of your profit has been eroded from the all-time highs. There's less buyers in the market. And also the buyers who are in the market, as you mentioned earlier, they're not qualifying for as much. So they're lowballing. And it's not like they're trying to lowball, but that might be all they're able to qualify for. And we're finding that rural areas and smaller cities it's much harder to sell properties because there's a less of a buyer pool. If these bigger cities are having trouble moving properties, good luck with moving properties in rural areas. Expensive and high-end products or things that require discretionary income, such as cottages, are being hurt as well in the flipping realm. Again, many flippers are losing money because they had to compete with other unsavvy investors to win bids over the last few months. And those who are operating multiple flips are in financial pain. If they're not able to refinance it, then they better have the money there to pay back their private lenders or they're in all sorts of trouble. So lesson learned here is have a multiple exit strategies. If your flip doesn't work, does it cash flow positive on a long-term buy and hold as an Airbnb? Do not be greedy when you're flipping properties because prices are probably going to drop a little bit more over the next few months or maybe a lot more but I don't think they're probably going to shoot up anytime soon. So if you get an offer and it's not what you like, it's probably better that you accept that offer because typically in this market, your first offer is your strongest. Maybe not always, but do you really want to take that chance and gamble it? Probably not. Run your numbers based on depreciation in this market. Flippers are still making money. The experienced flippers, the professional flippers, but they are very strict with their numbers. And right now, You can't assume a flat market, assume that the prices are going to drop more and see if your number still makes sense as a flip. Don't take on too many projects at once because one project going wrong could impact your financial ability to not only complete other projects, but pay back your lenders as well. I think this is a good time to share a personal story on your and Mayu. And I can share, I think yours is more recent. I can share a little bit about my flip that went wrong too. Yeah. I think a lot of flippers out there that have made a boatload of money, like it all depends on what you did with those funds, right? So I think if you've been flipping for the last couple of years, you made a boatload of money and you lost a little bit this year, not the end of the world, right? The risk comes in people that started flipping in the beginning of this year or late last year, right? That's definitely the highest risk perspective. So I'll share one of mine. I think we might've talked about it in like some of the preambles on the podcast, might not have, I don't even remember now, but not super uh, bought a property... Uh, November of 2021, finally sold. I think it was like August or September. I don't even remember now the exact timeline, but so basically this was in Prince Edward County. So the way I flip is I flip all cash, right? So it started off with 150K property in Belleville. I have a partner on it. We sold that. We rolled the profits into a tiny Ontario flip. We sold that. We rolled the profits into a uh, Chesley, Ontario flip sold that, rolled the profits into this Prince Edward County flip, right? Um, and along the way, you take some of your profits out and, and stuff like that. So it's all fine anyways. But so we're in it for all cash. The benefit of that is you don't have private money. You don't have that stress, right? But sometimes I look back at a deal and I'm like, I wonder like if I just private loaned some of my money out, I probably would have made very close to the rate of return that I'd got on some of these flips, right? So a lot of private money lenders have made boatloads of money with a relatively risk-free passive type of lifestyle, right? So Anyways, this one, we bought it for, I, I might be wrong on my numbers here just because it's been a while and I haven't done my bookkeeping yet for this one. So I think we bought it around like 350 or 360, something like that. 
maybe 370. We were in it for 80 grand, I think, in renovations, holding costs, maybe another like five or 10K. So we were in it close to, what is that, like 450, 460, 470, somewhere in that ballpark, right? We were trying to list it in March, which would have been great, but our contractors prioritize their own property over hours, hours, which is uh, you know, completely fair. I probably would have done the same thing if I was a contractor, right? So they finished their property in March and then they came back and they finished our property near, I think the mid April to end of April timeline, right? So I think we went live somewhere near the end of April or early May and we were listed at, I believe it was 629. And historically there were comps at 650. So we were like, shit, like we're going to make a boatload of money, right? But obviously now we were in a changing interest rate environment. This was after the first hike I think happened in April. There was, I believe, a second that was supposed to happen in May or June and stuff like that. So a lot of fear in the market, right? So we listed at 629, a couple of showings, no real offers. Dropped the price to 599, a couple of showings, no real offers. And then we just went, you know what? Let's just delist this. Let's refinance out of it. Keep it as an Airbnb property, right? Now, anyone that knows Prince Edward County, Airbnb, very hard to do in Prince Edward County. You would just kind of leave it at that. Basically, you got to be grandfathered in as an Airbnb or it's got to be a primary residence as well, right? So didn't really want to set up an Airbnb because it still costs like 20 grand, 25 grand to set up that Airbnb. We were looking at refinancing on the B side. So there's fees associated with that as well. And I was just like, you know what, man? Like, I don't really want to own this property long-term. I'd rather, and this was a conversation with my partner. I'd rather just move it at any cost and just call it a day, right? Like we've made money on our other flips. If we lose a little bit here, perfectly fine. So I think we had listed it at 529, if I'm not mistaken. And then we dropped it to like 499. We had some like bullshit, like really low ball offers come in. And then ultimately we had an offer come in at, I think it was like 450. So, so then we, we ended up countering them back at 470. We sold the property, I believe around like 470, right? Which doesn't sound bad, but I think, okay, so maybe my, my numbers are off somewhere along the way, but basically what we were forecasted to make was between like a 40 to 50 K loss after factoring in selling costs, staging costs, holding costs, renovations, all the minor shit that just kind of pulls in there. Right. Now, look, ultimately, like if we were never flipping, we would have never made the profits that we made and we would never would have lost. We still end up in aggregate ahead. Right. But like I said, it's really the flippers that started at the end of 2021 or early 2022 that are in the highest risk. And it's really the flippers that took on multiple flips at the same time, which is what you have to do to make it into a business. Right. That's really where the highest risk is. Yeah. And how many months was that beginning to end closing until you closed the sale as well? Six, seven, eight months? We bought the property November 2021. That's it when you closed? May. Oh, we, oh, sorry. We closed November 2021. You're right. I think we bought it maybe September, October. I can't really yeah. remember now. And then I think we sold it like August and the closing was a 30-day so closing. To put so things in perspective, the reason I asked this is because if you were to leverage out fully as what most mm-hmm. flippers will do, that loss would have been eighty dollars to $100,000 probably. Yeah, right? exactly. Like your holding cost is so negligible because it is cash. So it's property taxes, utilities, and small things here and there. Yeah. But it's yeah. not the mortgage payment. To be completely fair to every single flipper, like I remember 2022, I had a meeting with my business partner and we were like, you know what? We're going to do 10 flips this year. Right. And so the plan was to buy one flip every single month starting February. So I definitely got lucky. Right. Huh? <laughs> Meaning like in February, like I was looking at deals and like, I don't really see anything I like. March, there started to be rumors in the market of like all the potential hikes starting to happen and like, the, the potential market just slowing down as a whole. So it made me even more nervous. And luckily we just didn't buy anything. Could have gotten a lot worse. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, exactly. It was about being, I guess, being responsible. Right. And I guess like yeah. a part of it was a little bit of luck involved too, of not jumping the deal. So you can see like anyone could have really got caught up in this situation. But anyways, yeah. I think we harped the flipping enough. So let's move <laughs> on to burring. 
Let's talk about burring, okay? Because we all think burring is this like super safe like investment. And for the most part, like it's how myself and Austin have made a significant portion of our net worth and it's great, right? But burring is definitely even more challenging in the current market, right? Because you got to look at what is a burr, right? So we start with the buy. So you got you want to purchase at market value. That's always a challenge, let alone buying below market value, right? Sellers are sticky as we see in multiple markets. So I think in an upward market, buying off market deals are great because sellers just aren't cognizant of what their property value is, right? In a downward market, sellers, once again, are using comps that are maybe like six months old, right? So I bring up the example where if you ask our parents, for example, what do they think their house is worth? They're probably going to reference some comp from like six months ago, a year ago of some house that sold on the street and they really have no idea what it's worth, right? The problem is, on market right now is where sellers are in tune with the market. And if you find that property that's been sitting for a couple of months, no real offers, no real action, you can usually buy that under market value, right? But still definitely tricky. And you have to be really careful about what is market value in the current market. You definitely have to go aggressively hunting, right? The second thing in the birds is the renovations, right? So renovations cost drastically higher than they did one or even two years ago. We used to do in a duplex, maybe 15 to 20K max for like a unit. And that'd be like beautiful units. Now today we're at 20K plus consistently on a given unit. And that's almost, it might just be that the properties I buy are a little bit more messed up now, right? But I can definitely see renovation costs across the board going up, right? Then we got to talk about the rental side, right? This is like, I love talking about the rental side because I think in many markets, investors have almost overdone it, right? And it's a little bit oversaturated. Rents, in my opinion, are a tipping point, right? So rental affordability is what I look at, right? So if the median salary is like 40K, that would imply that rental affordability is 30% of that $1,000 a month. If you've got dual income tenants, that's $2,000 a month, right? And in a lot of markets, 40K median salary isn't the case. That's really, I think, a stat from Toronto, if I'm not mistaken, right? So one of two things has to happen with regards to the rental market. Either rents will give or wages need to grow, right? Meaning either rents will drop or what people take home as income needs to grow, or I guess a completely unforeseen situation is we keep getting into worse and worse kind of LTB issues, non-payment of rents, like all of those kind of costs start to kind of double down and gets worse in the situation that we're in, right? Because ultimately people need to be able to afford where they can live. So I think personally, that's something we'll give, right? The last R is a refinance. So refinance valuations are coming in low, right? It's a result of overall pessimism, instruction from lenders on how to discount comparables, a motivated seller or two selling a property in distress, right? All you need, like in an upward market, it was great. You had that one comp that sold for a crazy high valuation that you're like kind of dumbass bought that property, right? But in a downward market, you just need that one comp where someone sold it for way too low and that's going to significantly hurt your refinance valuations, right? So what I would say, if you're an investor in the bird market, just be cognizant, understand how market movements impact every part of the burst cycle. Right? It's got to be treated. It's been treated as a beginner strategy for way too long. And people don't understand how much risk is involved in every single part of a burr where we're flipping, we're using private money occasionally, right? You're buying, you're trying to buy under market value, you're trying to refinance at the top of the market value, right? There's a lot of variables that can impact a burr. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. Kind of my conversations with these old school investors who have been around the game for a while is, is that. Burring in three to six months was not a normal thing. Now, people have done it in the past, mm -hmm. but definitely not in the speed and the timeline that we're doing it right now. And obviously in an upward trending market, you and I know when we run our numbers, we should have a lot more money tied in all of our deals in aggregate. But however, the market appreciated and we've actually pulled out additional funds. So it worked well for us. 
but this is working in the other way now. You project X amount of money tied in, market depreciates more, appraisals come in lower. So you have even more money tied in. And I, I can see this just equally as not dangerous, but you, you can be in the same predicament as a flipper. If you're doing multiple yep. burrs at a time and you have 30K tied in each burr on your spreadsheet and then each burr has 50 to 60K tied in, are, do you have any liquidity for yourself or has all your money been tied in now at that point, right? Yeah. And people that bank on using private money to finish renovations when there's no equity in the house, right? That's definitely another concern as well. Like if that's part of your strategy, you got to make sure you have a lot of, because it kind of brings in a lot of the risk from different areas, right? So earlier we talked about how private money lenders want to be at 70 to 75% loan to value. In fact, that's not happening on a burr, right? Because we're already at 80%. And then we're trying to get the last little bit of renovation money. And then it's like, what's your actual valuation depending on when you bought it? Like the values might have dropped and you're not really even going to be able to burn this anymore, right? So yeah. a lot of people caught in unfortunate situations and it is what it is, yeah. right? Yeah. And our final topic, and this is, I guess, the hot topic that every investor wants to do, short-term rentals or Airbnbs. Look, with any of these strategies that we mentioned about earlier, including this Airbnb one, it goes without saying that if you're a top operator, you'll feel a little bit of pain for sure, but you can get through it or you know you can survive and still grow your business, right? You might not be as profitable, but you'll still be able to scale. And that is the same with Airbnb. However, the issue is, is that to be a top 1%, that means 99% of people are not the top operators. And those are the people, the vast majority of people who are going to feel it the most. So short-term rental supply has increased significantly in Ontario. I was actually looking into doing the arbitrage model and I took a look into three cities, one of them being Barrie, Sudbury, I forgot what the third city is, but all of the trends seem to be the same in those three cities that I analyzed. Listings have increased by 100 to 150% in the period of four to five months. And that was in and around March 2022. And it's obvious why we're seeing arbitrage being promoted everywhere. If you go on Facebook or YouTube, I'm getting ads on it right now in courses and masterminds. So everyone wants to be a part of it because it's quoted as a low risk, low capital strategy to be able to get phenomenal cash flow for you to eventually retire your job, right? Here's some of the risk involved in it. One, as you mentioned earlier, Mayu, is regulatory risk. Regulations can change at any time. And there seems to be a trend with a lot of these cities against short-term rentals because it is taking away from the much-needed long-term housing supply that's needed for tenants. And on the investor side of things is, is that with Ontario backed up for eight months with the LTB, people don't want to rent to long-term tenants. They want to do short-term rentals or they'll rent to an arbitrager to do short-term rental because there's less risk, obviously, since there's no LTB loss to be dealing with. Another risk is, is that from a macro point of view, non-essential traveling has essentially opened back up. International travel is open, right? And as a result of that, we're seeing there's been a decline in occupancy rates in a lot of these Airbnbs, especially in cottage areas too. There's recession fears, there are job losses, and overall, there's less discretionary spending because because of inflation, people are spending more money on housing, whether it's mortgages or rent, on their utilities, on their grocery bills, on their transportation. So that's less money to spend on discretionary things such as renting out an Airbnb. Overall, kind of with my analysis, we're going to speak with Barry in specific because I remember that one the most is again, listings have gone up 100 to 150% in the period of four to five months, which is insane. And as a result of that, demand hasn't been able to keep up. So you have more supply, you have less demand. So obviously you see occupancy rates trending downward. 
we have a little chart up here. I'm not obviously you guys who are listening won't be able to see it, but there's a line that shows 2022 data and the 2022 data for occupancy is lower than 2021, 2020 and 2019. So this is the lowest occupancy rates we've been seeing actually. And also your average daily rate, which is how much you're renting your Airbnb every night, that's on the decline as well. And that makes sense, right? When there's more competition, you're forced to drop your prices to get your place occupied. And there's less occupancy too. So you're going to have to drop your prices more to continue to have your place occupied. So as a result, you're seeing your overall revenue from these Airbnbs being damaged quite significantly. With rents going up, less revenue gets overall because the occupancy and ADR is going down there's less margin and the arbitrage model. So understand the risk before you get into Airbnb. Be able to pivot into medium or long-term rentals if you need to. So if the numbers only make sense as a short-term rental, then it might not be a great strategy because there's not many exit plans outside of that. Build relationships and find bookings off the Airbnb platform. This is where I find the top operators succeed. I don't do it myself, but just kind of listening to their podcast and seeing what they're doing. They're networking with traveling nurses, uh, corporate stays, other companies to be able to get bookings outside of the Airbnb platform. And also don't follow the hype. Just because you see everyone else doing it doesn't mean you need to do it as well. We saw everyone jump into wholesaling and where are the majority of wholesalers now? They disappeared. We saw the majority of a lot of people jump into flipping. A lot of them are being washed out. Don't just follow the hype. You need to be an expert in whatever you do. Again, with any of these strategies that we talked about earlier, it's important to understand that if you're a top operator, if you understand your risk, if you're well liquidated before you get into these strategies, that you could still make it work. It could still be profitable. Maybe not as profitable over the last couple of years, but that wasn't the normal anyways. However, if you're getting into it following the hype, you're going to find yourself in loads of trouble. Yeah, how's your uh, Sudbury Airbnb doing? Yeah, so right now I anticipated a slowdown, but not the slowdown that I'm currently going through. Oh, yeah? Yeah, but again, like Sudbury's in Northern Ontario, so the weather probably has a lot to do with it as well. One of our Airbnbs, we actually just converted it to a long-term rental for students. It's a two-bedroom and we're getting 1800 on it. So it was... Yeah, and I can always convert it back to an Airbnb because students are like flexible with with leaving, yeah. finding another place. With our other Airbnb, we're going to keep it as is, operate it, and try to see if we can optimize it a bit more. I'm trying to connect with people to do bookings off the Airbnb platform. So I've been cold emailing, cold calling people. Had a couple of interesting leads. None of them have panned out yet. But until then, doing SEO optimization on the Airbnb. But SEOs can only get you so far if there's just not demand there, which in Sudbury yeah, right yeah. now, but there's just not too much demand for an Airbnb. Interesting. Yeah. All right, man. So I think that concludes our presentation slash market update slash whatever you guys want to call this. Any final thoughts, Austin? Uh, <laughs> no, not not really any final thoughts, really. I guess uh, we went super in depth. We're over time. I think people are bored of hearing our voices, but I do have something <laughs> to say before we jump off. You probably know what's coming, guys. It's a like. <laughs> rate it leave a comment do whatever you can to support this podcast especially because we're getting a lot of listeners but our reviews don't necessarily reflect that less than 10 percent of people are leaving reviews and that hurts my feelings i don't know if it hurts my <laughs> feelings but it should hurt my feelings too how often do you look at these reviews man i'm not even gonna lie i don't look at it really often <laughs> but uh, maybe like once every two weeks three weeks all right guys show Austin some love go on there just say awesome because you begged for it we're gonna drop a review right now i'm gonna give uh you guys three weeks to get that up to 200 or the austin said he's gonna give a hundred dollars to everyone that leaves a review so i don't know <laughs> uh, yeah they promise they're you know sure 
(laughs) (laughs) Anyways, that is it for today's episode. Guys, thank you for tuning in. And until next time, everyone, invest smarter, live better. Take care, all.